church really is a glorious thing, isn't it? Because it's us. And God has been faithful to call us to himself and form us into a body that is known as the body of Christ, the bride, the church, the sheep. And uh, what a wonderful thing. Let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come to your word this morning, I pray that you would open our eyes, that you would cause our hearts to be open to you, that the eyes of our heart, as Paul would say, would be open, that we might see the majesty of your person and the majesty of your design for the church, that you are the ultimate servant, that we are the servants of the Most High God, and Lord, that's who we are. It's not what we do, but it's who we are. And Lord, I just pray that thought would permeate our minds and our hearts this morning, and we would walk away from here with an identity that is unshakable in this world. The world knows nothing about service. The world knows nothing about servants who serve out of love and care and without hypocrisy. So God, speak to us this morning and open our eyes to your truth, for we pray in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, we're going to continue our series on Church Basics 101, and I want us to explore the whole issue of serving and what it really means biblically to be a serving church. And I'm not going to get down into specifics and tell you that you need to be serving in this ministry and that ministry and every ministry, but I want you to form in your own hearts the fact that we are servants of God. And that's what we do because that's who we are. I want us to look at what's at the heart of serving. I want us to look at who we serve, why do we serve. And if I commit my life to a lifetime of service, what's in it for me? What am I going to get if I commit my life to serving other people and serving God in this lifetime and literally eat up my life, give my life to that purpose as a living sacrifice? In short, what does the Scripture tell us about being a servant of God? Well, to begin with, to answer those questions, if you were to look up the word servant or its derivatives, you would find that the term is used over 1,500 times in Scripture. That's a lot. Uh, the word bondservant or bondslave or its derivative is used another 30, and the word slave another 200 or so. By way of contrast, the word for Christ is used some 500 times, and Christ is the one who came to what? Serve and not to be served. And we'll see that as we go through this. Now, in our world, servants are usually looked down upon because if we were truthful with ourselves, most of us are here to be served and not to serve. We like to be waited upon and entertained in the manner we've become accustomed to, and when we're not uh, given those comforts or that entertainment, we uh, seek it elsewhere, right? Um, even so many so-called churches are just self-help entertainment centers, as I would call them. But people love to be served. That's why we go to restaurants. That's why we... Uh, Go to movies. We like to be served. We like to be doted upon or drooled on or whatever. Uh, that's just the way we are because of our sinful natures. But it's not so in God's world, not so in the church of Jesus Christ. God 
reserves his highest accolades for his most humble, obedient servants. And we see this throughout the Bible. It begins at the very beginning. Abraham is referred to as the servant of the Lord. In fact, he's called the friend of God because he did God's bidding, didn't he? He was called and he answered. And he did exactly what God, even to the point of being willing to sacrifice his own son on Mount Moriah. Moses and Joshua are called repeatedly over and over and again servants of the Lord and God affectionately refers to them as my servants. David, Elijah, Hezekiah, Job, Israel, uh, Jacob, uh, Zerubbabel are given the honorable titles servants of the Lord or servants of the Most High God. In the New Testament we have the term doulos or bond slave or a uh, slave in chains, a term of distinction for Simeon. Remember, Simeon is the one who blessed the Christ child when he was brought for dedication after his birth. And, uh, Mary refers to herself as the bondservant, the bondslave of God. It's a good term. It's a wonderful term. Paul, Timothy, Epaphras, Peter, and James, and Jude, and John all refer to themselves as bond slaves of the Most High God. In fact, the church, as they pray about the persecution they're being faced with in Acts chapter 4 and verse 29, they pray this, they say, And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bond servants may speak your word with all boldness. That early church saw themselves as the bondservants of Christ. Not those who were being entertained or not those who were being served by Christ, but they saw themselves as the bondslaves of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And You see, we need to get it into our minds and hearts that serving is not just something we do. It's what we are. We are servants. We are bondslaves. This isn't about us. This is about us giving our life, as we're going to see, to serve Christ because we are his servants. He's called us to himself to be his servants, his bond slaves. It's not something we do. It's what we are. We are servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we serve him as Lord and Master both in the church and in the world. That is our position, and that is our calling both in this world and the one to come. Isn't it interesting? If you're a servant, your position will never change for all eternity. Because you'll go to heaven and you will serve the Lord Jesus Christ forever in the new heavens and new earth, and it'll be the greatest joy in your life that there is. We're servants of God and we serve no other. We're the Lord's bond slaves. You know, uh, John MacArthur, oh, probably four or five years ago, wrote a book called Slave. And in it, he just delineates what a bond slave really is, and that's what we are. I would recommend you get the book and read it. It changes your whole perspective on life and trials and tribulations and what you're going through, and, because you are the Lord's bond servant. And when you have that perspective, it changes everything you go through. Whether it's in the church or outside the church, in your family, with your kids, with your wife or husband, or with people you uh, have contact with. 
When you see yourself as a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ, it makes all the difference in the world. Now, this is such a vast subject, and I would like to spend about 10 weeks on it. But I just want to give you three points. That, that, that's good because nobody would want to hear 10 weeks of this because it would be way too convicting. I'm serious. But I'm going to give you three points that will amply clarify what I just said. And the three points are these. Number one, being a servant is the pathway to greatness in the Christian life. And we'll see that in Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28. Secondly, being a servant is the more excellent way, or the most excellent way, and we'll see that in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13. And then thirdly, being a servant is our acceptable service of worship. It's what God accepts, not rejects, but what he accepts as our worship, and we'll see that in Romans chapter 12, very interesting passage. So, to begin with, turn with me to Matthew chapter 20, passage we've gone over, I don't know, probably hundreds of times, and uh, every time I read that, I'm just struck with what's in here. It just, it always speaks to me, it always convicts me, and it always sets me on the right path. In Matthew 20, 20, if you want 20, 20 vision on who you are in Christ, it says, then the mother of the sons of Zebedee. This is one of the most shameless, um, <laughs> I don't know what you'd call it, moves on the, the disciples' part in all of Scripture. I mean, this is just absolutely shameless. And uh, the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons bowing down. She probably went on her face before the Lord and making a request of him. And he said to her, uh, what do you wish? He already knew, but he wants to hear it from her. She said to him, command. Don't you love that? Well, could you possibly, no, command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. Wow. Talk about a stage mother, right? But Jesus answered, said, you do not know what you were asking and boy, at that point, they should have just bowed out. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And arrogantly, they say, we are able. He said to them, my cup you shall drink, and they did. But to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know the, the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It's not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your doulos, your bond slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Puts life in perspective, doesn't it? Now, we've gone over this passage, as I said, many times in the last 25 years, but I'm always struck by the ugly, sinful nature of man and the loving, caring humility of Jesus. At this point, I mean, he could have just leveled them. But instead, he tells them how to be great. 
John and James want, the, want to be power brokers. They want to get to Jesus and throw their hat in the ring before the others got to him, and, and shamelessly so. So they put Mama Zebedee up to commanding and demanding that he gives the thrones of power to her two sons. Surprisingly, she doesn't ask to be the queen mother of heaven, like some of the queens that ruled in ancient Israel. And John and James arrogantly but unwittingly declare they are able to drink the cup that Jesus is about to drink. They are so full of themselves at this point, they have no idea what it meant to drink the cup he was about to drink, to, to drink in the wrath and drain the, drain the dregs of God's judgment for us. But of course, they were able to drink the cup. And he says, my cup you shall drink. But they're not the only ones who were full of themselves. There's the ten, verse 24, who were indignant with the two brothers because they got there first. What John and James did was in all their evil little hearts to do. They all at this point are jockeying for position and coveting the power and authority and prestige they believe Jesus is able to give them. You know, in the Last Supper, when, uh, I think it was uh, Judas, no it wasn't, was it Thomas? Anyway, one of them asked, what has happened to the kingdom? Because he's really telling them what's going to happen, and it's not sounding good. What's happened to the kingdom? You know, because we all want the power and authority you have. And, uh, you know, as I thought about this, I thought, you know, this is one of the most negative things you can think of. They're, they're just power hungry, yet it's probably the reason Jesus picked these 12 men. Because they wanted to be somebody. They wanted to be great. They wanted to be power brokers. They wanted to be leaders. They wanted to really accomplish something for the kingdom of God. So much so that they're jockeying for the positions of power. They weren't content to just be on the team. They wanted to lead. They wanted to be the kind of men who would accomplish something in this world and take this world down for God. That's why Jesus, I believe, picked them. And then when he went to the cross, of course, all their dreams, all their ambitions are shattered, and they would ultimately, except for Judas, become the servants and become great in the kingdom. So it's got a positive and a negative side. Verse 25 tells us they know and would gladly embrace the power of Caesar or of Herod or Pilate or any other ruler for that matter. They wanted greatness. They wanted to be leaders. They wanted to accomplish something. They aspired to that. We've talked a lot in our elder meetings about aspiring to be an elder, to aspiring to be a deacon, deaconess, to be somebody uh, that would accomplish great things as God worked in and through their lives. And these guys were those. But once again, notice Jesus' response. And make no mistake, he is not squashing their aspirations, but he's telling them how to be great in the kingdom of God. He's telling them how to have a shot at the right and left-hand thrones in the coming kingdom. Read verses 25 again through 28. He says, but Jesus called them to himself, seeing a teachable moment here. He says, you know... This is what your model has been, and this is what you've observed, and this is what you've seen. You know that the, the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and you'd like to see me do the same thing. And someday he will. 
he will rule the nations with a rod of iron, it tells us in Revelation 19. But not now. He says, and the great men exercise authority over them. That was the paradigm that they knew. That was the model that they knew. Command power. But then Jesus introduces something that's so radically different from what they knew that it's, it's mind-boggling when you think about the implications of it. He says, it's not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. The greatest of the greatest would be the slave. That kind of turns everything on its head, doesn't it? You know, whichever way you want to flip it. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life a ransom for many. He holds himself up as the ultimate example. You wish to be great? You desire to be great for the kingdom of God? Serve the purposes of God. Serve the needs of others. Become a servant. Let it be who you are. Let it become your identity. Uh, diakonos, the New Testament word for servant. You know, we get our words for deacon and deaconess from this. And in essence, I suppose when we're turning down the position, we're turning down the opportunity to be great. To be somebody. To accomplish great things for God. I don't know if that's the proper term. I, I read somewhere it's not a good term to accomplish something great for God, but that God would have the opportunity to do something great through you. We turn those down and oftentimes do not have the opportunity to carry out what he's talking about here. And if you really want to become great, become a doulos, a bond slave, one who is literally bound in chains to Christ and in chains to serve the needs of others, and in so doing, you just might have a shot at the right and left hand seats of power. That's what he's telling them. The Father will decide that. And you'll sit at Christ's right and left hand. The cost of fame is servitude. Loving ministry. Verse 28, just as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, give his life a ransom for many. You see, Christ is our ultimate example. The one who is at the right hand of the Father knows the way and the cost of greatness. I would imagine he weighed that from all eternity when he decided to be the Savior of the world because as God knew we would fall, we would fall into sin. He loved his creation and the Son became the Redeemer from all eternity, the Lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. You know, if he had come to be served, it'd be like any other tyrannical God men invent in their own image. But he came to serve and give his life a ransom for many. He meant our greatest need and fulfillment of the scriptures. He died for our sins, bearing in his own body the wrath and Justice of God towards sinners. He was buried and on the third day he rose victorious over sin and death. And he, because he paid the ultimate price and because he gave the final price, payment, 
He offers us the free gift of everlasting life. Isn't that amazing? That is so incredible that Christ paid it all. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. He died once for all, for all time, the book of Hebrews tells us. There's no longer a sacrifice. He is the way, the truth, and life. No man comes to the Father but through him, period. Why? Because it's a free gift. You know, every religion on the face of the planet is trying to figure out a way to pacify God or to make God get on their side or to do something great for God that, that, uh, that might get them into heaven or their goodies might outweigh their baddies or whatever it is that they're trying to do when you and I are just given the free gift of eternal life. And out of gratitude, I mean, how great, could you, could you ever get a better gift than eternal life? Eternal heaven, as you read in Revelation 21 and 22. Could you ever get anything better than that? Come up with something that's better than the fact that you will, will live for eternity. And it's free. Wow. Sounds like a good deal. I wish my car was like that. Wish it was free when I bought it. But that's not the way it works in this world, is it? Everybody thinks they've got to earn something. Everybody thinks they've got to do it on their own, that they're captain of their own ship and their destiny and blah, blah, blah. But you know what? The truth is, Christ paid it all. He came to be served and not to be served to give his life a ransom for many, to those who would embrace him as Lord and Savior and love him the rest of their lives because of that. What greater gift could we receive than the gift of eternal life? You know, he humbly, Philippians 2, served our greatest need. Uh, he thought equality with God not a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself and took on the form of a bondservant. Being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then you get to the exaltation part. Because of that, it says, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow over those in heaven and earth and under the earth. And, and everyone proclaimed that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus knew the way to greatness, didn't he? How you become great is to become a servant like him, to become a bond slave like him to the needs of those who are needy. His greatness as the God of all creation, Colossians 1, 15 and 16, what Pastor Craig read last week, was demonstrated in the humility of the cross and the redemption of all who will believe in him for the forgiveness of sins. And, and this passage lifts up that amazing demonstration of humility and servitude and Love as being the same attitude with which we are to serve one another. This is the pathway to greatness in the kingdom of God. To be a servant of God and to be a servant of one another. If you really want to be first among, become a bond slave to Christ and a bond servant of others. You know, I love Luke 9, 23 and 24. He says, if anyone wishes to follow me, come after me. Let him what? Deny himself. Take up his cross. And what is, what is the cross? The cross is an instrument of what? Death. Let him die to himself. 
you know, quit thrusting yourself out there is so important. Die to yourself and follow me daily. Take up his cross daily and follow me. Die to yourself daily and follow me. And then he says, whoever wishes to save his life, well, what? Lose it. You know, if we follow the ways of this world and all we can think about is ourselves and what we're getting out of this world, what are we going to do? We're going to lose our life both now and in eternity. But he says, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And how do you find your life in Christ? Well, you die to yourself, you find your life in Christ. That's what being a servant, being a slave is all about. That's greatness in the kingdom of God, and the greatest church is a church where people are serving one another, even at their own expense, time, talent, treasure, whatever, where we're serving one another. That's the greatest church in the world. And I would say, as I look at our church, I would say we are on our way to greatness. And that's because we're becoming, we're going down the food chain in this world rather than up. And we're serving one another, we're loving one another, we're caring for one another. And that's, that's greatness in the kingdom of God. It doesn't get any greater than that. Now let's look at, secondly, that there's, uh, being a servant is the more excellent way. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and look at the last verse there. Now if you understand the Corinthian letter, they're not doing real good. They're sort of a church that's full of themselves. They're taking brothers to court. There's immorality that they're tolerating. There's just all kinds of junk going on in that church, okay? And even in their spiritual gifts, it's like, look at me, I've got the gift of so-and-so, and oh, aren't I wonderful? And they all get together, and everybody's got a psalm and a hymn and a tongue and an interpretation and, and all this stuff, and they're, they're exalting themselves. And Paul's setting them straight. I mean, that's it in a nutshell. And he gets to the end of, well, this is one continuous text originally before Stephanus put it in chapter and verse in the 15th, I think it was the 15th century. Wasn't it, Craig? Somewhere around there. Anyway, um, he says, uh, but earnestly desire the greater gifts, uh, 14.1, he says, pursue love, yet earnestly desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. Why prophecy? Well, prophecy is for others' edification. It teaches others. It serves others when you teach the Word of God, right? So he says, uh, earnestly desire the greater gifts, and I show you a still more excellent way. You say, what could be more excellent than me serving others with my gift? Well, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains and do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give my, all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, become a martyr, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, is not jealous, love does not brag, is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it does not 
Seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. In the end, love never fails. True love, as it's described in Scripture, never fails. You say, what's it take to get on the pathway to greatness? Well, simple, love. That's what it takes. Because if we don't love God, we don't love others, we'll never serve others. And if we do serve them without love, it's worthless. It's all self-effort and self-exaltation. It's all, look at me, how wonderful I am. Loveless service is like a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. It's, it's loud and noisy, and it draws a lot of attention and glory to the one doing the service. But God says it's worthless to him. It amounts to nothing, verse 2, and it profits the person or profits me nothing. You know, I think of those times where I've done service that, you know, you're like, wow, aren't I something? I did this. And those are the things that God will just kind of like overlook at the judgment, I hope, and just say, well, I, I, didn't, I didn't recognize that. And then there's those times where you really give of yourself and you, you love the person you're giving to and you just... It's just what you are. It's not what you're doing, but it's what you are. And you're just giving of yourself. You're giving of that inner person. You're giving in the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's, there's an incredible difference. You know, when I hear people say, well, I'm just, I can't stand that ministry anymore. I'm just burned out on that and blah, blah. You know, it's like, oh, really? Wow. You know, that was a great opportunity and a great great thing that God had you doing and then you're all burned out well whose strength were you doing it in what's with the attitude you know I can see moving on I can see doing something different but where's the attitude coming from what's that all about you know we should glory in the fact that God uses our lives and and what we do is storing treasure in heaven. Notice how true loving service expresses itself once again. Look at verses 4 through 8 again. It says, love is patient. I don't know about you, but that eliminates me most of the time. Why did he have to start with that? Love is patient. You know, I, I, I am, I'm telling you, I'm reminding myself of that a hundred times a day. You know, I'll, like this morning when I need to get to the mirror because I need to get down and do my sermon and be really spiritual and stuff, I need to go over that. And, and uh, Sandy's at the mirror that I need to use. And, I mean, as you can tell, Sandy's not moving real fast these days. And it just, uh, all of a sudden it's like, okay, love is patient, love is patient, love is patient. Oh, love is patient. Let me be patient here. And, and love is kind, so just shut your trap. <laughs> you know, love is not jealous. Don't have a problem with that, but some do. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Anybody got a problem with that? Uh, does not act unbecomingly. Oh, man, that's a tough one. Does not seek its own, your own way, your own this, that. Is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered. 
You know, I think grudge holding is one of the greatest sins in the church. It's one that just doesn't seem to go away. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness with sin, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and therefore endures all things. Love never fails. Let me ask each of us a question. In order to serve others that way that we just read, do I need to speak with the tongues of men and of angels? Probably not. Do I need the gift of prophecy? Do I need to know all mysteries? Do I have to have faith to remove mountains? Do I need to give all my possessions to feed the poor? Do I need to be a martyr, burn myself for something? Burn myself for Jesus? You see, even all that as ground as grand and spiritual as it sounds is if it's done without love, Paul says is absolutely worthless. You say you're kidding. If it's done without love for God and love for others, it's absolutely worthless. No treasure is stored in heaven. As first John tells us, Love is ultimately the measure of all service. So we love not in word or tongue, but in deed and truth. 1 John 3.18 God's servants serve out of love for God and one another. And that brings us to our third point. That being a loving, caring servant is our spiritual service of worship. And this is where it all comes together in the church. Our spiritual service of worship. Turn with me to Romans chapter 12. And I realize some of this is kind of hard to hear because it kind of clubs you right between the eyes. That's why I'm not giving it too graphic of illustrations. <laughs> It's hard to deal with, but it's something we need to deal with. In Romans chapter 12 and verses 1 and 2, he starts out this chapter by going, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. That's interesting. A living and holy sacrifice is something that's dead. They used to slit their throats before they had put them on the altar. So, But we're to be a living and holy sacrifice. In other words, we're to be dead to ourselves and alive to God and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind by the word of God so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable or well-pleasing and perfect. Now, there is so much in this chapter, so I'm just going to hit the highlights. So notice, first of all, that sacrificial service, dying to self-service, that presenting myself to God as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, is my spiritual service of worship. It's what God saved me for. God seeks those kind of people to, wor to worship Him, right? To worship Him in spirit and truth, it says in John chapter 4. He saved me to be holy, to walk righteously before him in the righteousness of Christ. He 
Save me to be serving him as a transformed worshiper, my mind renewed by the word of God that I might prove what the will of God is, that which is good and well-pleasing and perfect. That's my spiritual service of worship. And that's the church, isn't it? That's you and me. That's what we're called to. That's our spiritual service of worship. Now, how does that play out in the body of Christ, the church, and in the world in which I now live? Well, first of all, it means that I'll be a servant in the body of Christ, the church. Look at verses 3 through 8. He says, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, and I would repeat that statement, for the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, um, he says, not to think more highly of yourself than you ought, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as he had many members in one body, remember a few weeks ago we talked about unity, diversity, and mutuality. He repeats that. He says, for just as we have many members in one body, unity, and all the members do not have the same function, diversity, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, mutuality. The point is we need one another. You need me and I need you. Sometimes desperately. <laughs> and how do we do that? Well, he says, since we have gifts that differ accordingly to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. And obviously, every one of these things is a sermon all by itself. I'm serious about that, so I'm just skimming the top. But Now, you may have noticed there's a progression in these three points. If you aspire to greatness, if you aspire to be an effective, fruitful servant of Christ, and you cultivate a love for God and a love for others, demonstrating that love, then you'll find a way to serve your brothers and sisters in the church, the body of Christ. Remember, it's who we are. We are servants, so we serve. It's not something we do, it's who we are. We are servants of the living God. And that may show itself through prophecy or teaching. I kind of lumped them together, but uh, leading a Bible study, teaching Sunday school, Awana, preaching, discipling, there are dozens of ways to, to teach. Find someone who knows less than you and teach them. And let them teach you in the process. Teach each other. You know, and the man-to-man -man, and the woman-to-woman, -woman, when you get together with that person, don't let the one who is, quote, more spiritual do all the teaching and talking. Come prepared. Come prepared to interact. Come prepared to give of yourself and your wisdom and your knowledge that you've gained from what you've learned and help the other person become a more godly Christian than they are now. We can gain from both young and old, mature and immature, and we can gain and we can help each other, and we can edify each other through that time and uh, make it a profitable time, not just a one-way conversation like Sunday morning. <laughs> There's a place for preaching, but, you know, when we get together to disciple, 
we teach one another and we help one another on to godliness. Or service. Serving as a deacon or deaconess, looking for opportunities to help out, uh, you know, wood ministry, orphans and widows, shut-ins, nursery, pioneer a ministry. If you see a need in the church, pioneer it. If you see something needs to be done, you know, talk with a godly person, one of the elders and or one of the pastors, see if that need is legit and and see if you can pioneer a ministry. You can organize it. You can lead it. Um, you know, be creative. Or exhortation, stimulating one another to love and good deeds, confronting sin and pointing people to righteousness. You know, the gift of exhortation isn't going around looking at every rock for some sin in somebody's life, but it's pointing them to righteousness. It's seeing the sin getting alongside the person, loving them, teaching them what the Scripture says about living a righteous life in that regard. And uh, that's exhortation, or part of exhortation. Giving, and giving liberally of all that we have, time, talent, treasure. There's, there's hundreds of ways to give too, isn't there? Not just money, it's not just the offering, although that is important to the needs of the church and the needs of our missionaries, and so on and so forth. But, you know, how do we give of our time? How do we give of the talents God has given us? How do we use our giftedness to the glory of God? That's a a wonderful thing. And uh, leading says with diligence. Diligence just means hard work. (laughs) You lead with hard work. Two things qualify a person as a leader. Number one, they know where they're going, right? Leaders who don't know where they're going are a problem because they think they're leaders, but they're not leaders, but they know where they're going, and to know that, <laughs> thanks, Mike, we're, uh, you know, you, you need to know the scriptures. Secondly, you need to have people following. If you're a leader who's got nobody following, you become a target, right? Because you get out there, you know, and they can get you in their scopes. But make sure you've got people following, and you're leading them. Uh, you know, one of the greatest things you can do when you do ministry is take somebody along with you. Disciple, give them the experience and, and joy of uh, working with you and learning from you. And then there's mercy, with cheerfulness, pointing those who are hurting to the one who is the source of all joy. You know, James 1, 2, consider it all joy, my brethren, you encounter various trials. And we need to help people along in that regard because there's a lot of people going through a lot of stuff And they just need somebody to come along, put their arm around them and say, you know, God still loves you, bro, or sis. And, uh, you know, he's going to see you through this, and you can have joy even in the trial. Not not joy necessarily at what's happening in the trial, but joy in the fact that God's in charge and God will bring you through it somehow. These are just some of the ways uh, we fulfill our spiritual service of worship in the body of Christ and how we serve one another as a serving church. Then Paul proceeds, and we'll end with this, to tell the Romans what it means to live a transformed life in this world and not be conformed to the spirit of the age. And if you know what was going on in Rome at the time, you understand how timely it is that he wrote this. 
In other words, what it means to live as a servant of Christ in this sinful world. Listen to what he says, verses 9 through the end of the chapter. And we'll just kind of read this together. He says in verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy. <laughs> that alone would transform our world. Abhor what is evil, hate evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence. Keep working hard at it. Don't grow weary in well-doing, Paul told the Galatians. He says, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Do it with gusto. You know, I love Nehemiah where he talks about Zabai. I think it's Zabai. It's talking about people who did this part of the wall from here to here. And, and it says, Zabai did it with vigor, zeal, excitement. You know, he was thrilled to have the opportunity to, to rebuild the wall. And, and that's kind of the way we should be, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. I like the contrast there. We contribute to the needs of the saints, and we also practice hospitality. That's the, the word for stranger love. It says, bless those who persecute you. How different from the world. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. In other words, have the proper response to people you love and care for. Never pay back. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Don't pull off any Clint Eastwoods. If you're old enough to understand that. <laughs> he always got revenge in all his spaghetti westerns. But never pay back evil for evil. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. They may not, may not want to be at peace with you, but on your part, you be at peace with them. He says, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You know, God does a much better job of taking vengeance than we could ever imagine. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him to drink. For in so doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In a word, beloved, we serve God in this world, not the ways of this world. We are, as one fellow put it, contrarians. In fact, you might say we're called to live a life that contradicts almost everything we see happening in our world. We're not to become overcome with evil, but we are to overcome evil with good by living out the Word of God. Why? Because we are servants of the Most High God. We are servants of Christ. Our passion is to prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect, because we're servants of God. So what is a serving church? Let me just sum up. It's a body of God's people aspiring to true greatness through their loving service to one another. 
It's a body of believers presenting themselves to God and to each other as living and holy sacrifices, dying to self in their spiritual service of worship, proving what the will of God is through their loving, caring ministry to one another and their transformed living in a hostile, sinful world, both living out and proclaiming the gospel. Let's pray that we as a church will continue to be that serving church, that we would aspire to true greatness by being servants of Christ both in and outside the church. To God be the glory. Great things he will continue to do if we aspire to that greatness. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word and just how powerful it is, it just it rips at the very heart of our souls and, and it brings concepts to our minds and hearts that are so contrary to this world that they're almost foreign, they are foreign to our thinking. God, I just pray that you would uh, put it in each of our hearts to aspire to greatness, to be servants to be bond servants, Lord, to take the more excellent way of loving you and loving one another, and Lord, then to demonstrate that to a watching world, both in and outside the church, that they would see a serving, loving, caring, edifying body of believers that they would be drawn to because we're so different from the world, not like the world, we don't want to be like the world, Lord. We want to be different in a good sense. And so, God, place that in each of our hearts and open our eyes to see the truth of what we talked about this morning. And, uh, Lord, give us the strength to have the appropriate response. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Pray for one another. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Love one another. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. Fellowship with one another. As each has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as the one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as the one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Keep serving one another. That's what it's all about. Father, thank you so much that we do have the opportunity to pray for one another. We have the opportunity to fellowship with one another. We have the opportunity to serve one another daily. And I just pray as we avail ourselves of these opportunities that that we'd realize that more than anything that we are servants of the Most High God. And Lord, what a glorious designation that is. There's nothing greater in this world, for we pray in Christ's name. God bless you and keep serving the Lord. Love you guys.